Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's time for Conversations with Great Minds. You are probably familiar with Congressman Ro Khanna as the guy who comes on this program every couple weeks and answers your questions for an hour, the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, really smart guy and a great congressman from uh, the Silicon Valley area. But you probably don't realize that he is probably by far the most tech-savvy guy in the U.S. House of Representatives, maybe in all, probably in all of Congress. He represents Silicon Valley, as I mentioned. He is a uh, Yale Law School graduate, a serious intellectual, as well as a brilliant progressive. And he's got a new book out. It's titled Dignity in a Digital Age, and it's just brilliant. On the line with us is Congressman Khanna. Congressman, welcome back to the program. Tom, I'm, I'm honored by all that. I didn't know you had a great line series. It's a, a little bit humbling as opposed to the weekly question and answer. We actually do. There's a, in fact, there's a website, Conversations of Great Minds. It goes back like a decade. I mean, you know, we've had all kinds of incredible people on. So glad to have you, Congressman. So you, you live in a district or you represent a district that includes the headquarters of Apple, Google, Intel, and Yahoo. I mean, it doesn't get more techie than that. And yet, as a member of Congress and as a candidate, as a political candidate, because in the House you run every two years, you refuse to take money from corporate PACs, from political action committees. That's pretty damn impressive. How did you pull that off? I was fortunate to have a lot of grassroots support, a lot of individual support. But the reason I didn't want to take the PAC money is then it obligates you to support a lot of the company's official positions. And I have taken positions on antitrust that companies disagree with. I've taken positions on an Internet Bill of Rights and data privacy that the companies disagree with. There are things that the companies do well that I champion, but there are things that they're doing right now that are not correct, and it gives me much more freedom to, to speak out and be independent. That's a great take that this is, this is all about independence. 90% of the, you, you note in your book, and, and we're talking with Congressman Ro Khanna, he's uh, the author of two books actually, but his latest is Dignity in a Digital Age, Making Tech Work for All of Us. You write that uh, 90% of innovation job growth in the last couple of decades has come out of five cities and that about half of all the digital service jobs are just in 10 
major metro centers, you write, Americans are, quote, disconnected from the wealth generation of the digital economy. Can you speak to that and what your solutions are for that? Look, there's $11 trillion of market cap, Tom, in my district. $11 trillion. Apple has gone in the last two years from $1 trillion to $3 trillion. It's probably the most wealth generated in any one region in human history. And this region has grown 40%, while a lot of the rest of the America is struggling. And you're going to have 25 million, quote-unquote, digital jobs by 2025. By the way, a lot of these are in manufacturing. A lot of them are in construction. Just because something has a tech component doesn't mean that it doesn't intersect with other industries. And many of them are concentrated. So GM, instead of hiring tech folks to build their new cars in Michigan has put them in Silicon Valley. And you have these areas that have become the wealth centers where people, by the way, if you poll my district, very optimistic about America and what's happened in the rest of the country. They've in many parts been sold false promises that somehow globalization or the new economy was going to work for them. They should just move, that they should just get trained and that everything would be fine. Well, they've experienced job loss. They've experienced deindustrialization. They've experienced a brain drain with kids having to leave their hometowns. So the heart of the book is arguing for policies that will decentralize tech innovation to mid-sized cities, to rural America, to black and brown communities, and have a real place-based focus in industrial policy, really, in, in our country. And you look at sort of Intel going to New Albany, Ohio, and saying we're going to create 7,000 construction jobs, 3,000 manufacturing jobs. Those are the types of revitalization projects that can take place if we actually had place-based policy. Correct me if I'm misremembering my history, but my recollection is that in the 90s, part of Bill Clinton's sales pitch for NAFTA and for ultimately normalizing relations with China and and exercising the, the general agreement on tariffs and trades to create the World Trade Organization was that we don't need all these dirty manufacturing jobs where people like lose fingers when they go to work because we've got this extraordinary explosion of tech jobs coming. We're going to move from blue collar to white collar and it's going to be a good thing for America. I remember all that rhetoric quite well and, and, and people like Thomas Friedman, you know, championing it. But I don't remember any policies other than so-called free trade. Let's just send all our jobs to China. I mean, we lost 60,000 factories as a consequence of that. I don't recall anything that actually was, I suppose you could say the Telecommunications Act, but it's just pieces of that, and, and it did some real damage, by the way, to the radio and newspaper and television industries, that actually was expanding tech in the United States beyond places like Silicon Valley, like the place that you represent. Am I, am I misremembering? I mean, are you trying to like fix up a, a, a previous mistake here by a, by a previous Democratic administration? And not just Democratic. I mean, you know, the Republicans were all in on this free trade stuff, too. Well, it's been 40 years of neglect, and I didn't support, obviously, NAFTA and some of the trade deals, and we do need a manufacturing base in this country. But putting that aside, the idea that people could just gravitate to these jobs and that we would just have folks be trained for these new tech jobs and move at a time where it's expensive to move, where people want to live in the communities they grew up, was naive. And there was no sense of, well, how do we get the new manufacturing of the new economy in these places? Okay, if we're not going to have the traditional manufacturing in some places, well, what about the semiconductor manufacturing? What about manufacturing on electric vehicles? What about all of the new types of innovation jobs that require 
construction and technology infrastructure as well. How are we getting that in places that have seen other jobs go offshore? And then what are we doing to create some of the modern wealth generation and these digital jobs, which are not just go become a coder at Google, which are digital jobs in retail, digital jobs in agriculture? What are we doing to actually create those jobs in the middle class jobs in these communities? And I believe there was not nearly enough thought put into it. It was all about, well, innovation is taking place, wealth is being generated, the markets are doing well, consumers are doing well. But as we did that, you basically had the desolation of a lot of towns across the country, cities across the country. Yes, tax the billionaires in my district, absolutely higher taxes, uh, invest it, but we need to do something more fundamental, and that is actually provide people with economic pride and opportunity in a 21st century economy where they live. And I don't think enough thought has gone into that over the last 40 years. We're talking with Congressman Ro Khanna about his new book, Dignity in a Digital Age, Making Tech Work for All of Us. In your book, Congressman, you talk about how the pandemic actually kind of shattered the conventional wisdom about tech concentration. And you say the promise is of new jobs without sudden cultural displacement. And in fact, you're calling for federal contractors to have at least 10% of their workforces in rural communities. Am I, do I have that right? Rural communities and black and Latino communities, yes. How does that work? Is this the sort of thing that's done by legislation? Done by legislation, or it could be done by agencies as they dole out these contracts. I mean, these companies get huge, huge contracts to do federal technology work. It's almost $80 billion or $100 billion that the federal government contract out for these projects. And here's one of the myths, unfortunate myths, has become that these digital jobs, 25 million, require some advanced coding skills or, or all these computer science skills. They don't. A lot of them are actually blue-collar jobs. Most of them, you don't need a four-year degree. You need eight months, 10 months credentialing, but you do need to have a certain type of uh, course in credentialing. And that is if the federal government were to say, look, 10% of your workforce has to be in a rural community or 10% has to be African-American or Latino, you would immediately incentivize these companies to partner with land-grant universities, partner with HBCUs, have people on those projects that can do this work. And by the way, then you'd also incentivize them to create jobs of Fortune 500 companies that that need a lot of different types of skills and basically creating the new middle class in some of these jobs that currently are concentrated in a few postal cities. Congressman, it's, it's been a few months since I read your book, so forgive me if I'm misremembering, but my recollection is that a lot of the, particularly the, the opening parts of the book, were about your and other people's experience of growing up in America as the children of immigrants, growing up in America as a person of color. How has that informed your understanding and perspective with regard to tech, the solutions and suggestions you're putting forward in your new book? That's a very thoughtful question, Tom. I would say in two ways. On one hand, I'm so aware of the debt that I owe to the civil rights movement. So my parents immigrated from India post-1965, the Immigration Reform Act. That was only possible because of the civil rights movement. Before then, 90-some percent of immigration to this country was European. There were very strict quotas and basically very hard to immigrate to the United States if you were Indian or Chinese. And it was the civil rights movement that opened those doors. And the civil rights movement, of course, influenced in part by Gandhi and the Indian independence movement. And my grandfather, as, as you may remember, was in jail four years during Gandhi's independence movement. Mm -hmm. So 
this continuous sense. In fact, you know, one of the great honors I had is talking about Reverend Lawson and his time in India with John Lewis. And he talked about how he brought some of Gandhi's teachings to Tennessee and taught him about civil rights. But because of that interconnection, I think now that you have all these Indian Americans who've in brilliant ways ascended to the top of the tech leadership, Sundar Pichai at Google, Satya Nadella at Microsoft, I think there's a particular responsibility and obligation to expand that to communities that have been totally left out, like the African-American community and the Latino community. A lot of Indians, when they came to this country, couldn't get jobs at a Harvard or a Stanford. They were hired at the HBCUs because that's the only place where they would employ them. So part of my perspective and an immigrant story is, well, what is our debt obligation to communities now left out and that, that centered in part on the African-American community? The second part of my story is probably a more hopeful story, and that is growing up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, having a lot of people encourage me, believe in me, having the Bucks County Courier Time publish my letters to the editor, and growing up with a sense of still hope and optimism about America. And I think that still comes through in the book. Some people may say naively, and others may say, no, there's still some goodness and decency and prospect of us becoming a multiracial, multiethnic democracy. I, I think there is. <laughs> I, I think without that, we're really screwed, don't you? I mean, isn't this really a, a, a pivotal question for our future? Well, my favorite chapter, actually, of the book is the last chapter, and it has nothing to do directly with tech. And tech is sort of a lens to achieving this vision. And I think one of the great underappreciated speeches in American history is Frederick Douglass's composite nation. For people, whether you read my book or not, please read that speech. And Douglass, here's Douglass, who has been a slave for 20 years standing up for Chinese immigration and being hopeful about America's prospect of becoming a multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy. And it's so uplifting. And I think if he could believe that then, you know, certainly we have an obligation to continue to try for it. Brilliant. Brilliant. You point out in your book, about 20% of computer science graduates are either black or Latino, but only about 10% of the, of the employees of the big tech companies are black or Latino and fewer than 3% of venture capital, or less than 3% of venture capital, ends up in the hands of black and Latino entrepreneurs. Um, you're suggesting solutions for this. Here's why it matters. You can't overcome the racial wealth gap unless you overcome the racial wealth generation gap. And right now you have uh, app applications like Clubhouse that are popularized by uh, black uh, artists and, and black musicians, but there are no African-Americans uh, actually, in the in the board uh, seats, they're not benefiting from the venture capital. They're not uh, the founders, uh, and so you have all these IPOs and wealth generation basically aggravating uh, the racial wealth gap, which is ten to one. Uh, and I say, look, in addition to uh, incentivizing the hiring of uh, uh, of African American graduates. Uh, we ought to be uh, incentivizing or requiring diversity on the boards because that's going to change the culture, uh, actually focus on retaining people, which is one of the big challenges. It's not just uh, recruiting them. Uh, we ought to focus on incentivizing venture capital to go uh, to uh, women and African-American partners who would take much more risk in investing in uh, new entrepreneurs who have as much talent and dreams but don't have the same networks. And you know, the end, to tie it back quickly to the end chapter, the point is it's not just about the racial wealth gap, but as, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois has this beautiful line of us being co-workers in the kingdom of culture. And part of the problem is that the, those creating the modern 
digital culture and, and architecture and uh, are, are very exclusive. And it is not inclusive. And you can't have a democracy or co-workers of equals in creating culture if people are excluded from a huge part of uh, the digital life and digital wealth generation. Yeah, I, I totally get it. You also take on a, a couple of really big issues in your book, and, and we got about a minute and a half here. Algorithmic amplification, you talk about how Facebook, uh, you know, 64% of extremist groups joins are due to their recommendations. Uh, you talked about, you know, the, 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 the slaughter of Rohingya Muslims in, in uh, Myanmar coming out of, out of uh, Facebook. Um, what do we do about this? And data mining. As well. It's unconscionable. First of all, we ought to have legal liability where people can sue in the United States court under the Alien Tort Act. I mean, what Facebook did was target people who are most vulnerable with uh, information saying, go join QAnon. That's how it grew. Uh, and in Myanmar, basically, they allowed their platforms to be used to, to, to in, incite uh, human rights violations, I mean, in the incitement of violence. So there ought to be legal consequences. And here, I mean, uh, with Instagram, they're basically selling a product they know is causing depression with uh, teenagers. And I don't understand why the same rules of consumer protection don't apply to Facebook. I mean, how can you sell a product that is causing depression with teenagers uh, and uh, not be have a consequence? In part, I think the intimidation of lawmakers about technology gives license uh, to these tech CEOs to, to, to not have accountability. And what they fear is folks who just may understand this enough to say, no, we need accountability. Yeah. Amen. Congressman Rokana, his new book is Dignity in a Digital Age. You can find it wherever great books are available. Congressman, thanks so much for dropping by. It's always great talking thanks. with you. This, thank this you. Was, really appreciate it. It's an honor to be on. My pleasure. And back at you. Thank you. And a brilliant thank book. You. I encourage everybody to get a copy. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. 
patriarchy, anybody? As in, you know, yes, uh, little lady, uh, we know what's best for you, and we'll decide this. 17-year-old girl got pregnant, wanted to get an abortion. This was in Florida. It's legal to get an abortion in Florida at the moment. She, uh, but she's a minor. She wasn't 18, so she had to have her parents' uh, consent. Uh, they did not provide that, so she went to a judge. And the judge said, uh, no. And he cited, this is the Hillsborough County uh, Circuit Court Judge Jared E. Smith, cited the fact that Doe, uh, her, you know, her name is being protected because she's a minor, Jane Doe, uh, had originally said she made B grades, but her current GPA is 2.0. This is how the judge decided that this uh, teenager, the 17-year-old, could not have an abortion. He said, clearly, a B average would not equate to a 2.0 GPA. Testimony evinces either a lack of intelligence or credibility, either of which weigh against a finding of maturity pursuant to the statute. This girl's claim was that at 17, she was mature enough to make her own decision about getting an abortion. She didn't need to defer to her parents. And the judge said, no, you're not mature enough. And, and then they pointed out she works 20 hours a week. She's, she's in school, in full-time high school. She works 20 hours a week. She has $1,600 in savings. She has two credit cards in her own name that she got herself. And she pays for everything except her cell phone bills, which her parents are picking up. But he's like, oh, no, little girl, sorry. Uh, no abortion for you. She did get a, another court to overturn his ruling. Patriarchy on steroids. This, this, is, this is how they do it. And now in Virginia, the Republican war on black history, and that's, I mean, let's just call this what it is, right? The whole CRT and, and blah de blah de blah What this really is is a Republican war on black history. They do not want white kids or black kids to know black history or Hispanic or Asian or Native American. I mean, they just don't want anybody to know black history. And in the war on black history yesterday, Governor Youngkin, the, the uh, right-wing crackpot who campaigned as a reasonable Republican until he got into the, into the governor's uh, mansion in Virginia, uh, he rolled out a new tip line for Virginia conservatives to rat out teachers who dare bring a whiff of our country's collective history of racism or slavery to the classroom, as Walter uh, Einenkel is uh, writing over at dailycoes.com. This is nuts. I mean, this is like the bounty hunter law in, in, in Florida. He, he says uh, they have made it illegal to uh, teach that some students are consciously or unconsciously. This is, this is a quote from an executive order by Glenn Youngkin. Right? This is an actual quote. He's, uh, you, essentially, in Virginia schools, you may not teach, quote, inherently divisive concepts like critical race theory and its progeny. Instru you may not instruct students to only view life through the lens of race and presumes that some students are consciously or unconsciously racist, sexist, or oppressive, and that other students are victims. In other words, if you talk about racism contemporarily or in the, in, in the past, as I said, this is war on black history, uh, you can lose your job. And in fact, the Republicans are pushing a law in Virginia that would allow parents to sue teachers in schools and bankrupt them for teaching black history. Let's just, uh, the, the, by the way, the, the tip line is an email address. It is helpeducation at governor.virginia.gov. 
uh, as uh, one of the one of these folks, uh, Kasim Rashid, uh, tweeted out. He said, uh, "Please don't make a mockery of this with fake tips. That would be a terrible thing to do. Do not make a mockery with fake tips." To the email address of helpeducation at governor virginia.gov. But I think the larger issue here is that this is this is pure and simple, right up front a war on black history. And Democrats I need to start calling it that. The Republican war on black history. It's a, it's a simple, straightforward way of saying it, and it is what's going on. Now, on top of that, there's also a Republican war on vaccination. In South Carolina, they just proposed a law. It's H.R. 4848. It's going to committee on, uh, now it was filed on January 20th, that makes it a crime punishable by up to a year in prison for asking someone's vaccination status. Any employee, officer, agent, or other representative of a public, nonprofit, or private entity, in other words, me as an employer, who inquires about the COVID-19 vaccination status of any student, employee, member, or anyone else seeking admission to the entity's premises, in other words, like a restaurant, is guilty of a misdemeanor and upon conviction must be fined not more than $14,000 or imprisoned not more than one year or both. So here you've got a, a state where, you know, COVID has killed thousands and thousands, or th- presumably thousands of people. I don't have the numbers right in front of you, but South Carolina is one of the states that has been in serious crisis, and they want to make it a criminal offense for an employer or a restaurant or a, anything to ask, are you vaccinated? Before you, presumably, actually, it doesn't even say you can't deny them access for that. Just to ask the question. You go to jail for a year. This is insane. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Now, Republicans have for years accused Democrats of being the thought police and politically correct. Ah! Mary in Fort Worth, Texas. Hey, Mary, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching Free Speech TV. Thank you, Tom, for taking my call. My big concern are are the public schools and keeping them strong for the 90% of children in this country who are totally dependent on them. Now, uh, my question is this. Should taxpaying parents of children under the age of 18 who have their children in in public schools K-12 and who are responsible not only for the physical well-being of those children, but for their behavior, have the right to opt out their children from any instruction in the schools that they feel conflict with the values and standards of their homes. Now, this is just until they're 18, and because once they get past that age and are into college, we're, on a, we're dealing with young adults. Well, we've kind of had this debate in the United States, Mary, since the 1920s when um, I think his first name was John Scopes was put on trial for for teaching evolution in the schools in was that Tennessee or Kentucky. And uh, in fact, it was uh, William Jennings Bryan, I think, who prosecute, who tried to prosecute him. And uh, what we ended up concluding, I think, as a nation, even though actually Scopes lost that that court case. But more broadly, what we ended up concluding as a nation was if there is something that is true and it's important to know because it has to do with your ability to function in society, um, then it's entirely appropriate for our schools to teach it, whether it is evolution or whether it's black history. 
Well, I don't have any problem with what the teachers that should, that that schools have a right to teach. What I have a what I have a question about is: Do the parents who might, for some reason, have a um, desire that their children not be exposed to certain information uh, while they're at the age under the age of eighteen, right. have the right? to opt out or have the information that those discussions or instruction or assemblies are going to occur in the school. In other words, your question, Mary, is do, do parents have the right to abuse their children, basically? Do parents have the right to convince their children that the world is flat, that the earth is flat, that evolution doesn't exist, that black people were never oppressed in the United States, that slavery didn't happen, or if it did, hey, all those slaves are just happy, happy. Do parents have the right to abuse their children? That's, that's the question you're asking, right? No, no, not abuse, because I think we have a different viewpoint. Don't you think lying to your kids is, is a form of child abuse? Beg your pardon? Don't you think lying to your children about things that are demonstrably true, no, like science think, or history, is a form of child abuse? Lying. No, you're not, uh, you're not lying. You are withholding, your you're withholding information. I mean, we also else. had these debates about sex education. Um, it, it seems to, and, and, and one of the things that we know is that kids who are not exposed to sex education are more likely to have venereal diseases and unwanted pregnancies. I mean, you know, again, it's child abuse to withhold that information from children, and we can prove it scientifically. Well, I, I, I don't I understand why you're supporting child abuse, children. Mary. That's what, that's what baffles me. Why would you support child abuse? Well, I, it depends on what you consider child abuse. I think I doing things to children that's going to harm their future is child abuse. I'll just leave it at that. Mary, I got to run. Thank you very much for the call. I, I get it that you wanted to frame this as whether parents have, quote, rights. I think it's really important that we understand that the right, the parental right that you're talking about is child abuse. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Courtney in Brooklyn, New York. Hey, Courtney, what's on your mind today? Hey, good afternoon, Tom. Um, I just want to comment about um, the critical race theory topic you was on. Yeah, uh, it's no, it's it's no, it's no surprise. Well, it's no surprise to me, or it, it, it should be a surprise that 
this talk of critical race theory and um, what should be spoken about and what shouldn't be spoken about in the classroom is happening at the same time where the defunding of education is happening. For the past 20 years, approximately about, you know, um, four or so generations of high school, public um, education has been defunded. Yeah, ever so, since Reagan, really. For, for It's been going on for 40 years. Reagan started the defunding of our public schools. Absolutely. So what my point is, they're raising all of, all of these this, all of these discussions, and I believe it's misdirection from us focusing on the you know the true funding of education. Because instead of focusing on the pillars, the fundamental pillars of education, and how that used to you know that it was working, there was nothing wrong with it. You know, now they're raising all these questions, creating all these discussions and debates, and they're like they almost adultifying the teenage the, the teenagers and the kids to the point where they're asking too many questions and they you know they want to ref- they want to refuse things and it, it it's almost like a process of destabilization because they're misdirecting people's attention away from the you know the real point and that's you know proper funding of education and they have all these um different forms of school systems now with the curriculum all this i believe is taken away from our focus and you know i've heard you um talk about books the reason um books talking about memory and um why we can't focus on things anymore yeah. and i believe it's all it's all these public discussions and everything and um it's it's really important to me because for the um 10 years or 10 10 years or so ago nobody was talking about critical race theory it was a fundamental thing when people were discussing um um things in um social things in school yeah. you know it it wasn't so, it wasn't so it wasn't so much of an issue and no no this now, is a manufactured issue Courtney. this is something that fox yeah, news exactly. fox news rolled this out a year ago it took them a year to get to this point and they started pounding on it, and you know, there's this graph that I, I believe I saw it on MSNBC um, uh, a few months ago, where you know they, they started out with four or five mentions in one month, and then they went to 20 or 30 mentions in a month, and then they went to like 50 or 70 mentions. And as they started mentioning this more and more on Fox, it became more and more of a meme in Republican circles. But I think you're absolutely right. But the bottom line here is defunding public education, and the and and in the minds of these. Uh, wealthy white billionaires and and the and, and and basically the the wealthy white power structure in this country, public education in their mind, you know, they figure you know wealthy white people send their kids to private schools and and charter schools. So public education means minority education. So of course they want to defund that. That's part of my point because this all benefits and profits corporate power, yeah. and how um, they want to like put a cap on collective education and there's no it's no surprise that we have an equity problem there's very we're very low on intellectual capital um just like a side note going towards you know federal jobs programs and everything but um but before before we finish i know you don't have that much time i wanted to touch on one other point yesterday you was having a conversation with ben jealous and he was and he was talking about um he was talking about like you know racial issues and how we see each other and how um we see people as you know as um black people see um white people as white and not like polish german mm-hmm. and irish and i remember i remember calling it, calling in on the show and talking to you about that when i was talking about the concept of whiteness mm-hmm. and all this 
benefits the corporation. It's they're they're weaponizing racial ideology. It's not even it's not even it doesn't even belong to the racist people almost. It's the corporations, just like in the eighteen hundreds when they separated the slaves from the Welch people because they knew if they combined their resources and um you know if they combine their thinking and their resources, they would over time, you know, um, out um, outweigh and create wealth that will rival the, the corporate power or the um, the wealthy the wealthy class's power. Fast forward to now, it's the same thing. Oh, I don't want to I don't want to lose my point, yeah. but. No, I think he made it very well. And 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 one of Ben Jealous's notes, and something that I hadn't thought about, frankly, I, I guess this is uh, you know my white privilege on display. He said white people. If you, because you know, white history wasn't interrupted by slavery, so there's like this continuous recollection. He said, you ask a white person where I'm, I'm wildly paraphrasing here, but essentially, you ask a white person where they're from. And for example, you ask me where I'm from. I say, well, you know, Norway. My my father's parents both came from Norway. Uh, my mother's were from Wales, and so I'm Norwegian and Welsh. You ask a black person, and they don't know because of the interruption of slavery. He said, but but now as a result of things like you know, 23andMe, these kinds of DNA tests and stuff, you've got black people who are starting to say, no, I'm Cameroonian, or I'm Ghanan, or I'm, you know, I'm Nigerian is where most of my ancestors came from. And he was talking about the importance of shifting away from identifying ourselves based on the color of our skin and back to the historic way that humans have identified themselves as, you know, where they... Nationalities. Yeah, exactly. Where where their tribe started out, essentially. Not as race, but as geography. And I think that, that, that was a fascinating point that I, you know, uh, I, I think is really worth amplifying. Courtney, thank you. Thank you. Your points are, are, are very well taken. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, you wanted to get back to uh, child abuse and school boards? Uh, yeah, well, I don't, I don't even need to go to the, the child abuse part, but for the person who asked, did, did they, should parents have control over what their children are learning at school? Yeah. Um, well, they already if do. If you really want a lot of control, you can homeschool them. That's your first choice because it's all about choice now, Tom. Remember, it's all about choice. So you don't have to send your – that's just an option to send your kid to public school, or you can send your kid to a private school where you have a little bit more – you know, quite a little bit less locus and control, but the homeschool you'll have the most. But when you get to the point, and with private schools too, to the public school, who determines the curriculum is a school board. That's it. And so yep. I may not like it as a teacher in the public school. There's all things I disagree with, but that's what I got to do. And the arbiter of whether I'm pre- pre- uh, pre- presenting that stuff correctly is the on-site administrator and so no i'm not going to talk to a parent about what's in the curriculum approved by the public school by the school board so they have they have a chance to elect the school board sometimes some school boards are appointed but that's the politics of that and so after to that point i'll i'll talk to you tell you tom blue in the face about how i'm evaluating your student but with regard to the curriculum but i I had a parent come in and ask me if i was going to be teaching the fossil record in my bioscience class, I said, yes, because, well, you need to let the kids know that the dinosaurs were Satan incarnated. <laughs> I said, well, no, I won't, be, I won't be teaching them that because, first of all, the fossil record doesn't necessarily include a survey of the dinosaurs of the Jurassic yeah. and Cretaceous period, well, but if I don't teach that, I'm, I'm shortchanging them. I said, no, exactly. I'm not going to talk about And that's about child that. abuse. That's my point. And, and, and when Mary called, she was asking the question that got asked of, uh, uh, who was the Democrat 
who ran for Virginia's uh, governor. Yeah, Terry, Terry, Terry McAuliffe. Terry McAuliffe, thank you very much. Brain fart there. Um, she, was, she was asking the question that a reporter asked Terry McAuliffe, and Terry McAuliffe gave the wrong answer. You know, the, the, the question was, uh, should parents be able to decide the curriculum in their schools? And McAuliffe's response was something to the effect of, uh, no, that's the job of professional educators. They, they understand what curriculum is a, much, much better. And, of course, the answer is the answer that you just gave. And Mary was trying to get me to say, no, parents shouldn't have that right. Of course they do. But I think that it's really important that we also reframe this or, or re-understand it as, you know, you're not willing to abuse the children in your care as, as a teacher, Paul, um, by, by feeding them misinformation or lies or keeping truth from them, which is what Republicans are trying to do right now. And by the way, this goes back to the 1920s. I mean, the Scopes Monkey Trial. Um, yeah. you know, there's a long, long history here. Um, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, that's, that's a good thing. <laughs> and, and generally but, but speaking... Tom, what they're, go ahead. As you, as you pointed out, we, we, we are talked about this, is that they think that any discussion of race is critical race theory. As I'm aware, there is no curriculum, K-12 curriculum, for critical race theory. That's law school curriculum. And by the way, you can decide by when you enter a law school if you like the way they teach CRT in that law school, what they're going to approach. You can interview the professors and say, okay, I don't like that law school. But when a critical race theory curriculum is developed for K-12 and it's, in, it's uh, adopted by the school board, yes, it can be taught. And I don't care what the parent says. Okay, Paul. And by the way, it is an elective in law school, so it's an important point to make. Paul, thank you very much for the call. We'll be right back. Pat in uh, National Harbor, Maryland. Hey, Pat, what's on your mind today? Oh, hi, Tom. I'm glad you got you. I'm glad that, well, I'm not going to say I'm glad your guest not, didn't show up. But, but anyway, I want, let, let me just say this. I, I heard you when I first tuned in, you were talking about Black History uh, mm-hmm. Month. I, I don't want to get into this argument about black and white as a race. Uh, and I, I say this over and over again. There is no black race and there is no white race. And I think the more we say it, the more intelligent, uh, uh, educated people keep correcting the record that it will begin to uh, spark curiosity and questions and, and, and put us into a deeper conversation about nationality and ethnicity and why black and white was created as a race in the first place. So I'll just, I'll yeah. just say that. Yeah, but they, I call to talk about this. just the human race. This falls in line with... Um, really, you know, this whole thing about Black History Month. Mm-hmm. There is no Black History Month. There is American history. And slavery and the Civil War and Reconstruction, civil rights, are as much a part of American history as World War One, as the Industrial Revolution, as women's suffrage, and all that stuff that, that is part of Americana. Except in so, Florida. In Florida, it's going to be illegal to teach the history of slavery in the United States, Pat. That boggles my mind. I don't know how I that know. can happen. I don't know how African Americans or anybody will, will allow that to happen in a school system. That means that our kids are going to come out dumber and dumber and dumber. Yeah. And, and not knowing our history, my mom used to say all the time, and it's not something that she created, but, you know, old folks have this old wisdom. But if you don't know your history, you're destined to repeat it. Yeah. And uh, and this this whole thing around banning the teaching of critical race race history is which is non-existent in any American school. Let me just say that first. It's just an attempt to rewrite history for what I don't know, but it has become uh, 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 a a a tool uh, to keep certain people in the Republican Party in power. I think what what, what, do. 
I'll just say this as well. It's not new. Uh, the, D, the DAR, uh, the Daughters of the American Revolution, was, were the progenitors of, of, of whitewashing history, which is why we have all of these statues around the country uh, uh, saluting what I call traitors, these, yeah. these, all of these people who fought against the United States in the Civil War. Right. That's not the DAR. That's the Daughters of the Confederacy. But yes, your, your point is well made. I, my, my sense of it, Pat, is that what's going on here, um, you know, being an old fart, I mean, growing up in the 1950s and 1960s, there was, you know, there were no black people on television. There were, unless they were villains or idiots, you know, buffoons. Um, there was no serious discussion in school about the, the racist history of America. We didn't, you know, I mean, we, we learned that slavery was real, but not the horrors of slavery, nothing, nothing even close to learning about the horrors of slavery or the founders being slave owners and those kinds of things. There, and, and I think that that kind of white-centric America where, where it's only white people in the media and only white people's issues are discussed and, and, and issues that have to do with um, race, for lack of a better word, I get your point that it's, there's only the human race, but but issues that have to do with race um, were just didn't exist in our schools, and that's what they're trying to go back to. They want to go back to that Beaver Cleaver world in 19, 1955, you know, and I don't think it's going to work. But uh, they've they've got a brand here, and this is why I'm saying Democrats need to brand right back at them and call it the Republican War on Black History because that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, I, I don't know. I, I, you, you go back to the fifties, but you can go back, you know, to the nineteen to the twenties or nineteen ten, early, early, you know, early American after the Civil War, uh, and and, and uh, even the white people who call themselves white weren't white then. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. So the whole idea, I mean, there, there was, there was, there was discrimination, rampant discrimination against Irish people, rampant discrimination against uh, Italian people, but they were able to. Uh, 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 you know, melt right in, in this great melting pot, and, uh, and most of them uh, uh, wanted to do that. But it, it, so you know, this whole construct of, construct about blackness and whiteness being a race, it just you know, it just curdles my blood. It's poison. It's poison. <laughs> I, just, I just think we need to get past this, and yeah. I need to think we need to. I, I, I mean, you know, we don't. Start talking about it. If, if white folks don't understand, for instance, if, 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 if Irishmen and, and, and Italian Americans don't understand, for instance, that this same, uh, uh, this same strategy was used against them as immigrants coming to this country, then they won't, they'll, they'll keep assuming that this is, the, you know, that it's real. Yep. And they won't have any affinity or any uh, uh, understanding and, and sympathy toward the movement because they think they're something else. They think they're other. They may have been, they may be now considered that, but it's for political reasons that they are. Yeah. And if they don't get that, they won't see how, if the tide turns and every black person left America, right? Yeah, I would say it wasn't, yeah, yeah that would be... That's a whole other thing. But I would say that it was also not just political. It was also economic. That the powers that be want a permanent underclass so that they can have cheap labor, basically. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. 
conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The Republican Party had been casting about trying to find some little hook that they could put into the body politic of Americans and drag them along uh, with the Republicans. They tried multiple things. None of them seemed to stick. You know, they're, they're uh, oh, the, you know, Biden is the, with the, what was it called? The American Rescue Plan, the piece of, piece of legislation back in June that, you know, the, to cut child poverty in America by half. And the Republicans tried their, oh my God, what's it gonna do to the deficit or the debt? And Americans were like, seriously? You know, Donald Trump, when he came into office, the national debt was 20 trillion. When he left, it was 27 trillion. And you're gonna tell us that all of a sudden you guys are worried about the national debt? They're trying it again, by the way. Uh, infrastructure debt, oh my God, oh. Yeah, right. Americans aren't buying it anymore. We have figured out from Ronald Reagan to Donald Trump, the Republican Party have been running a con job on us, a scam. They went after the whole abortion thing and they went after, oh, it's, you know, the Democrats are the parties of legalizing marijuana and people were like, okay, that's cool with us. Then they tried going after trans people and, uh, you know, whipping up a hysteria about trans folks in sports and all this guy. And, you know, none of it stuck. They weren't able to demonize the usual suspects. And I don't know if it's just that, you know, after 40 years, Americans have figured out that we've been conned. Or if we kind of had a come to Jesus moment with the coronavirus, seeing people around us getting sick and dying and being confronted with our own mortality. Suddenly a lot of this small stuff like, you know, gee, is my neighbor gay? Became something that even, even the bigots decided bigotry was too much trouble. But whatever it was, they weren't able to get, you know, that hook into us until they discovered critical race theory. Of course, the reason they were so successful with this is because nobody knows what the hell critical race theory is. Because it's this weird little academic subset of legal studies, actually. It's, a subset, it's, a subset, it's not a subset of African-American studies. It's a subset of law about how, for example, when my dad came back from World War II in 1940, whatever it was, 1948, 49, when he came back from two years occupying Japan after World War II, he bought a house and he got a, a college education and both were subsidized. He went to college for free. In fact, they gave him a, a stipend to go to college. And, you know, he got a house with the, with the GI Bill. But the black guys that he was serving with in Japan couldn't. Why is that? Well, it turns out the law was being used to make that happen. Redlining was enforced by law. The inability of black people to vote was enforced by law. This was Supreme Court doctrine. Plessy versus Ferguson, 1898. And of course, that didn't get overthrown until 1965. My dad got out of the military in 1948, as I recall. So, you know, why is it that highways, when Eisenhower was building freeways, they always seem to go through black neighborhoods or separate black neighborhoods from white neighborhoods? How'd that happen? How is it that the power plants that are spewing all the poison, especially the coal-fired ones, where they got these giant piles of coal ash that is toxic and radioactive and filled with heavy metals and poison. How come they're always upwind from the black community? 
Turns out there's a reason for all those. It's not random. It's not accidental. And it's done with the force of law. So that's critical race theory. Well, nobody's teaching that stuff to 10-year-olds in seventh, third or fourth grade. But nobody knows that, right? Nobody knows what critical race theory is. And so the Republicans were able to reinvent critical race theory and say, let me tell you what critical race theory is. Critical race theory is, is when you tell white children that they should feel bad because their ancestors had slaves who were black. And therefore, little white children are guilty and should just sit around and cry all day long. I mean, th this is the Republican sales pitch. I mean, it's a, it's a lie about what critical race theory is. And it's an attempt to distort America's history. And, but, but in any case, we've got state after state. I think we've got 17 states now where they've passed laws banning critical race theory being taught, either at the state level or at various county levels. You've got this explosion of the takeover of school boards. Here in Oregon, there was, uh, this is, uh, OregonLive.com is how you find the, the Oregonian, our, our local newspaper here. And this article by, by uh, Eder Campuzano uh, titled, Oregon School Board Politics Have Never Been So Polarized, Partisan, and Hostile to Racial Equity. And they're, t they're talking about the town of Albany, Oregon. It's a little town, right? In the last 10, 15 years, every school board election, there's been basically one person running, the, the incumbent. It's <laughs> nine times out of 10, these are not even contested elections, right? You, you, when you vote for the school board member, you have one choice, and that's the person who's already on the school board. Because nobody wants to volunteer, it's not paid, or if it is paid, it's so little, it's not worth the effort. You gotta take time away from a real job, in quotes. I mean, maybe being on the state school board in Texas pays money, but not, not in a little town, small town Oregon, or Washington State, or Idaho, or even small town New York, or Maryland or Georgia. But suddenly there is this explosion of people running for school boards all across the country. And they're QAnon followers and Republicans, and they're all babbling about critical race theory. Oh my God, this is a threat to our children. It's going to make them feel terrible. Our poor little white kids. You know, their basic premise is little black kids are perfectly old enough and tough enough to deal with being the victims of racism. But little white kids, they're too fragile and too young to even learn about it. So, so this is going on. You know, they're, they're talking about from two, 2009 to 2015, out of 10 school board races across uh, Oregon, only two of those 10 races had more than one candidate. In other words, it was always the incumbent running. But this is just exploding across the country. And now in Michigan, uh, this, uh, this ban on, crit on teaching critical, critical race theory says that teachers can be subject to, uh, they can be sued by parents, they can lose their jobs, there have not, they have not uh, put criminal penalties in here yet, but the civil penalties are substantial. If they teach, quote, anti-American and racist theories. Now who determines what's anti-American or racist? And what, you know, what they're explicitly saying, it also prohibits teaching that the United States is a fundamentally racist country. 
And so you've got these teachers. This is uh, the guy who wrote the bill. His name is Barrett. He's a state legislator. And he said, critical race theory degrades pride in America and degrades our freedoms and liberties. We can't teach these kids this stuff. And so what's happening now is teachers are worried. This piece uh, from the Detroit News, U.S. history teacher Matt Enix and his eighth grade class watched together online as the mob broke into the Capitol building. And he was talking about how, you know, the kids are asking questions. What's going on with this? Why are people doing this? And kids ask questions like, you know, why is it that the power plants are always upwind of the black community? Why is it that, the, that, that so many black people in America are living in poverty? Why is it that Native Americans are still on reservation? Why is it that, you know, and, and the teachers are now getting to the point where they're afraid to answer these questions. Because if they do answer these questions truthfully, they can not just lose their jobs, but in some cases they could be subject to, they could be sued by parents for tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars for polluting the brains of their little white children. This is serious and dangerous stuff. If we are going to be, uh, Ellie Mystal, by the way, for The Nation, he wrote this brilliant piece, uh, Republicans hate voting rights because they threaten white power. He quotes Senator Mike Lee, the, the Republican from Utah, who repeatedly says, we're not a democracy. This is the whole Republican thing. We're not, because democracy sounds like democratic, right? We're not a democracy, we're a republic. And he goes on to say, democracy isn't the objective. Liberty, peace, and prosperity are the objective of American government. And we can get there without democracy. Oh, well, you know, this, as Ellie Mustel says, you know, this is, if you want to end white male hegemony in the, in the new world, then you have universal suffrage. Let everyone vote and equal representation. He says, these are the surest ways to end white male political supremacy, which is exactly what they're trying to avoid. He also points out that this didn't start with Donald Trump that this whole movement to reinvent America's racial history, to get control of what we teach in our schools, and to suppress the vote in black neighborhoods, this whole movement began in 2008 when Barack Obama became president. This is all a reaction to our having had a black president. And now we've got a black vice president, and they're going after her. Same thing. And it's all about maintaining and strengthening, actually, white supremacy in the United States. And we just need to be clear about that. We need to be upfront about that. And when we hear about these laws trying to ban critical race theory from the Republican Party, because they think they're going to win the 2022 and 2024 elections based on this, that it is all about promoting white supremacy. And frankly, who are the most outspoken advocates for white supremacy in the United States? The people that the FBI is now calling terrorists. They are proposing laws to support terrorists. Let that sink in. Todd in uh, Three Rivers, Michigan. Hey, Todd, what's on your mind today? I don't know if anybody else noticed it, but uh, during the football, the Kansas City football game last night, uh, during one of the plays when the, you know, the fans were whooping it up, they had a tight shot of two or three guys together in one of the close stands banging on the metal and the guy looks up and he sees the camera right in his eye mm -hmm. and he lifts his left hand up and he draws the circle with the three fingers extended towards the sky the white power he, symbol yes 
and I caught it. It was real quick, and they cut away. Yeah. And I, I had to replay it three times and freeze frame it and everything else. I was like analyzing a, a, play, a you know a yeah. replay. Yeah. <laughs> and I said to my wife, "Did you see it?" And she said, "You know when it first happened." And she said, "No." And I said, "Yeah, come on." I played it back. But then the audacity of it was, Tom, that I noticed it wasn't too long later they had the same shot from a completely different angle, 10 yards or whatever, down the sideline in the other direction. But it was, again, pointing back to these same two or three guys. And the same kind of wasn't quite as tight of a shot, but it was still there of the same three guys. And one thing I, I would ask is CBS have the capacity to stop. You know, if I swear right now, you'll hit the yeah. The button. Yeah. That decision is made in the control booth, Todd. There's a guy called the or a woman, but in any case, there, there's a person called the director who who is sitting in this console looking at all the various cameras that are available, and will say to the camera operators, you know, uh, camera one go in tight on those guys, camera three go over here down down by the ten yard line, and, you know, camera five, you know, show me the so and so, you know, on the on the infield. And so the first time it could have been a mistake. It could have been a camera operator who thought, okay, you know, here's some guys who look colorful, interesting, let's get a tight shot of them. The second time they go back to that same person, it's not just a camera operator who is looking for white power symbols. It's a director in on it with them. Yeah, and that's it. I'm hoping other people took that much notice as I did. But this is what the, the blatancy of it, Tom. Yeah. The absolute blatancy of it. This was a tight shot. This, the, the camera was up close to him. And when, when, he, when he locked his eyes on that camera, he just brought that thing up so quickly and so smoothly. He saw himself on the Jumbotron, right? I don't know. If it, was, it, was, if it, it might have been just the TV feed. Yeah. Because, you know, yeah. typically you can't tell when there's a camera on you unless they're, unless they're you know, popping well, pieces of it. Well, they know they got the handhelds, and they go along the edge of the oh, sideline. So oh, so this was this was actually a physically. This wasn't a shot from from the from the bleachers. This was a uh, or the the box. This was a no, this no, was so a, this a shot was a, from the the, si the sideline side cameras that bounce uh, up and down. Okay, yeah. And, and they they pan okay. into the crowd all. Well, the see, time. when that white power symbol went up, the director should have said to that camera operator, "Okay, we're going to talk after we get off the air, and you're not going to show those guys again." That's amazing, Todd. Todd, thanks a lot yeah. for the call. This the, you're, you're absolutely right. This is how blatant it is. Welcome to America 2022. That said, hopefully these are last gasps lore of the lost cause is starting to fade out. The statues are starting to be taken down. America is becoming America. It's becoming what the founders proclaimed it to be in the beginning. And we've never lived up to that. Hopefully we'll get there. We'll see you tomorrow. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. Thanks so much for being with us. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.